I want to encourage you that if you have your copy of God's Word to please open it to Revelation chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback Bible located in the back of one of the chairs near where you are seated. So please feel free to use that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one with you as a gift from Trinity uh, for you to have and to read and open it up for it is indeed the Word of God. Revelation 18. I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 20. As I do this, keep in mind when you hear the feminine pronoun her, it's a reference to Babylon. Or more specifically in the context of Revelation, Rome. So as we read through this passage, please keep that in mind. Revelation 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, 
Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to grant us understanding of your word. And even more than that, Father, we ask for your spirit to apply it to our lives. Please grant that today, by the sitting under your word, we will be transformed to be more like Jesus. This is your work, O Lord. We give you praise for it and ask you, Lord, to have your way within us. To the glory of your name, amen. A good picture of what you really value is what you mourn over. If you want to get a good picture of what your heart treasures, look at what makes you sad, what makes you grieve. story is told of a young man that was driving his BMW and he lost control over it, go, of it going around a curve. The car careened over the edge of a small embankment and crashed, rolling over several times. When he came to the EMT, the rescue squad was there working to free him for he was trapped. And when they arrived, they said, even though you were unconscious, you were crying out, my BMW, my BMW. And Sir, sir, don't worry about your car. We may have to cut your hand off, your left hand, to get you out. And then he started crying out, No, no, my Rolex, my Rolex. So humorous because it's tragic. To think, why would you call out after that unless that's what you valued? The truth is that many Christians to whom Revelation was first written Compromise their faith not out of fear of torture or persecution. They compromised their faith out of fear over losing money. They compromised their faith because they were afraid of what might happen to their personal finances should they take following Jesus seriously. Jesus warned us about this when he said, you can't worship both God and mammon because you will either love the one and hate the other. You have to make a choice as to whom you will worship. And the words of Jesus and the truth of Revelation should echo in our ears today. For we face the same question. Will we compromise our faith over money and luxury. We need to learn the lessons of the lament. We need to hear what the Word of God says so that we will not share in the judgment when it comes upon these structures of Babylon. Now remember in the end of chapter 16 we read the final bowl judgment. That was an image of God's judgment being poured out upon the world. The very last bowl dealt with the judgment that would come upon Babylon. Now to the first readers, Babylon was Rome. But I want us to understand that even though Babylon is represented as Rome, it is Rome, but it's more than Rome. 
It's any system that rises up in arrogance against God, promising satisfaction to all who would worship that system. That's Babylon. Now, chapter 17 gives us this close-up image of Babylon so that as believers, we will recognize the truth beyond the facade. Babylon wants to look like pleasure and luxury, but, but the Bible warns us, look beyond that and see that behind the beauty is ugliness. Behind the promise of pleasure is a prostitute. Behind the promise of power it's the beast. Recognize it for what it is. Don't get caught up in the image, but see the reality. And now in chapter 18, we hear a close-up lament of the loss of Babylon. We hear a lament for what is being lost as this system is destroyed. And the key point is verse 4. Look at it. This is the key takeaway from this chapter. Come out of her my people. Don't be a part of the system. Believers, we are called to be holy and committed to the Lord. So don't get caught up in the stuff of this world that is Babylon. Now remember, Babylon in chapter 18 is Rome. But it's also more than Rome. This idea becomes very clear throughout this chapter. You can see it in two ways. First, you can see it in the verb tenses. Verb tenses come in either future, it will be, present, it is, or past, it was. The interesting thing is that when we hear the destruction of Babylon in this chapter, we hear all three tenses. For example, look in verse 2. Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. Those two words fallen are past tense. Now, there's a thing called the prophetic past, which means speaking of future events in the past tense because they are certain to happen. But you also see this past tense in verse 17. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. It's past tense. But it's interesting in verses 8 and 9, we hear the future tense. For this reason, her plagues will come in the future. Verse 8, she will be burned up with fire in the future. We see in verse 9, all the kings who committed sexual immorality with her and, and, and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. When they see it, future tense. Verse 11, if you'll look at it, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. That's present tense. The past, the present, and the future all point to the destruction of Babylon showing that there is a timeless quality to this. That Rome was characterized by wanting pleasure and luxury. And there will be, there will be culture after culture that will rise, society after society that will rise claiming the same thing. The second reason I believe this image of Babylon is timeless is because the language that is used in chapter 18 is not new. This language is used in the Old Testament. It's used in the book of Isaiah, it's used in the book of Jeremiah, and it's used in the book of Ezekiel. And in each instance, it refers to a different city. The words of chapter 18 are used in Isaiah to warn about the fall of the city of Tyre. 
The words are used in Jeremiah to warn about the fall of Nineveh. They're warn, uh, used to warn about the fall of Babylon. So you see in the Old Testament where city after city that rose up in arrogance against God is warned that her luxury will not save her. And now in chapter 18, it is used of Rome. And I wonder today, could we look around and recognize that any cultural system any economic system, any political system that rises up and claims to be our Savior more than God, that promises satisfaction other than God, falls under the category of Babylon. Look around today. Look at our culture. Do we not hear echoes of Babylon today? We not hear the warnings that are given to Rome, given to us today. And this chapter is written so the believer will not be lulled to sleep by the siren song of luxury and wealth. As we approach Christmas, no doubt Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, will be portrayed in drama many times, and rightly so, for indeed it deserves to be called a classic. Remember the story, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a miser on earth, filled up with greed, is visited by three spirits. The spirit of Christmas past, the spirit of Christmas present, and then finally the most terrifying one of all, the spirit of Christmas yet to come. And there's a point at the climax of it where this spirit who is more of a, a ghostly, a, a representation really of death, is standing over Ebenezer Scrooge's plot in the cemetery and Scrooge is terrified he says he says can I change these shadows if this is the future can I change it chapter 18 is saying here is the future if you throw your lot in with the culture around you here it is so the question we need to ask is can we change can we escape the judgment to come and the answer is yes if we heed the lessons from this lament. What are the lessons? Lesson one is this. Learn the lure. Okay. Know how Babylon will trick you. Be aware of the temptations that Babylon will use to bleed the believer, to lead you and me to compromise our faith. There are three groups that sing this lament. The first group is found in verses 9 and 10. These are the kings of the earth. They are the ones who compromised. The language of sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her is a way of communicating they rejected God to cheat on God with Babylon. They cheated on God. They, they ignored God and they focused on Babylon as the answer to their problems. The kings are the leaders, the governors, the mayors, the movers and shakers of society. And the reason they weep is because their power was connected to Rome. As long as Rome was in power, they were in power. As long as Babylon was in control, they were in control. So here's the first two lures, and it's actually one lure with two hooks. It is the temptation to pride and power. These two are, are inextricably connected. Power is the ability to make things happen. 
to get what you want, to bring about change, whether it be for good or bad. But the desire for power leads us to arrogance and self-glorification because we say, look at what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished. And we simply cannot glorify God as we glorify ourselves. Power is intoxicating. That's why the language of being drunk with wine is woven throughout this lament. It's intoxicating. It lures us further and further away even when that power is sought with the idea of doing something good. And if we are lured toward power with the idea that we can accomplish good, we must always ask ourselves, what are we sacrificing to gain the power to do something good? How far do we go? I fear that the conservative arm of the church in America has simply compromised ourselves in order to have a voice at the table. That we have become enamored with the idea of political power so we compromise ourselves and we fail to ask the question, how far can we go? I find it interesting that when Christianity revolutionized the Roman Empire, and remember, Rome is in dust, but the church is still standing firm. Early Christians were from all strata of life. There were believers that were dirt poor, had nothing. There were believers that were wealthy, like Lydia, who was a seller of purple, who was a woman of means. There were women who supported Jesus. Luke was sponsored by a patron by the name of Theophilus, who was wealthy. Paul said, I know what it is to have a lot. Paul said, I know what it is to be rich. And he also said, I know what it is to have nothing. So the Christians came from rich, from poor, from every strata of society. But there were two things each of them had in common. One was a clear commitment to Jesus Christ over everything else. There was no middle ground. There was no cultural Christianity to play it safe. You couldn't just blend in and be a follower of Jesus. There was a clear commitment that to say, rich or poor, Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. And the second thing was this, a personal involvement in disciple making. Neighbor to neighbor discussions. That's the path of the cross. We must go forward with a clear commitment to Christ and a clear commitment to making disciples of our neighbors and our co-workers. I'm afraid that the church has become enamored with courting candidates who want to win the Christian vote when we need to be more enamored with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it is the power of Jesus to transform from the bottom up. If we want to see cultural change... It will not happen in Washington, and it will not happen in Hollywood. It will happen when you and I reach across the fence to our neighbors and begin discussing who Jesus Christ is. That's the power. And that's what we must return to. That's risky Christianity. It's easy to hide behind things when we look for someone else to fix it. But God has placed the church, that's me and you, in this world to be salt and light. Remember Jesus' discussion with Pilate? Jesus has been busted. He's arrested. Pilate looks at him and he says, You know what? Your own people turned you over to me. What have you done? Listen to what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be handed over. But my kingdom is not of this world. 
If we bite the lure of pride and power, we will find ourselves powerless without a voice denying the cross because the cross is not about worldly power. We must keep in mind that we are ambassadors of the king and to show that the kingdom impacts all of life. Carl F.H. Henry was a theologian who had a great impact in the latter part of the 20th century. He co-founded Christianity Today along with Billy Graham. Henry said that as we engage in the issue of politics, and as Christian citizens, we should, but we must always do things carefully. We must work through civil authority for the advancement of justice and human good to provide critical illumination, personal example, and vocational leadership. What that means is we must always retain a prophetic voice to say, thus saith the Lord, and to know our primary calling is to follow Christ and to make disciples. Be aware of the lure of pride and power. Second lesson is this. Be aware of the lure of economic affluence. The first group, kings, mourned the loss of their power. The, second, or the, the final two groups were the merchants and the mariners, seamen. Now the best way to understand how these two work together are to think of two mega companies in our nation. And you'll see the connection. First company, Amazon. Second company, UPS or FedEx or whatever you, know, you ship with. Guess what happens? As Amazon does well, UPS does well. You got to get those packages somehow. That's the point here. As the merchants did well, everything they had had to be shipped to Rome. So the shippers, the, the sailors did well. These two groups mourn the destruction of Babylon because their cash cow has just died. Look at the list of the goods in verses 11 through 13. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen. These were, this was stuff of luxury. This was stuff that came from all over the empire. But notice some things that seem a little bit odd as we look at them. Notice at the end of verse 13 or in the middle of it, there is wine, oil, fine flour, and wheat, cattle and sheep. I want you to keep in mind that the Roman Empire, even at this time, was broad. Covered from Spain over to the Euphrates River. It's huge. Northern Africa, the entire rim of the Mediterranean. But the city of Rome was the crown jewel. The city of Rome itself housed anywhere from 800,000 to a million people. That's huge in any time. So the majority of stuff produced by the empire went to Rome because that was the seat of political power and economic power. So as the wheat, the cattle and the sheep, the oil, the flour is shipped to Rome, history tells us that other parts of the empire began to suffer starvation because what they raised to eat was sent to Rome so they were starving, being deprived of the very crops they raised. But what is most startling to me is to see what is written at the end of verse 13. Slaves. And just so we'll remember that this is not an object, these are people. That is, human souls. This pulls back the curtain to reveal something very telling. The desire to get rich was greater than their concern for people. The value of the dollar was more important to these merchants and these mariners than the value 
of people. Now this is not just an issue for then. This is now. Do we value people more than stuff? Do we recognize that this issue of slavery is one that today is still very real? Take a look at a comparison for me up on the screen. On the left side is 1860. Civil War begins in the United States. Go ahead and hit the next button. And now, go ahead, Jeff, to the next one. At the time of 1860, 25 million slaves worldwide. Average price for which you could buy a person, $134. And worldwide, 78% of slaves are legal. Then we sit back and say, well, thank God that's... Don't have to deal with that stuff today. Look at the statistics from 2012, four years ago. 27 million slaves. Average cost, $140. Completely illegal. And I want you to keep in mind that within that number of 27 million slaves, the United States is included in that. This issue of slavery is still very real. The majority of these, this 27 million, are children and teenagers who because they have nowhere else to go and no hope end up selling themselves into slavery or it's from rival gangs around the world that take prisoners and press these people into slavery. And you know what's missing in this lament? Concern for people. There's no tears being shed that they are watching a city of a million people being destroyed. And there's no one saying, oh, the mothers, the fathers, the daughters, the sons. They're saying, who's going to buy my stuff now? There's no tears that lives are being destroyed. There's only tears because product can no longer be sold and bought. They are sad because their chance to make money has come to an end. So we, if we take this seriously, we have to ask ourselves, do we care? Are we concerned that there are 27 million people, human souls in slavery? Do we care that today, before this day ends, 21,000 people will die of preventable hunger? 21,000, most of them children. Now, at this point, our defenses come up. What am I supposed to do? I got work. I got my own stuff going on here in Jonesboro, Johnson City. You know, I've got life going on here. And I just wonder, could that attitude, why is it my problem? Could that be the attitude of Babylon? Could that be the attitude of Rome? It's not my issue. I've got too much going on. We need to hear the call to come out. Verse 4. Come out of her, my people. Now this is not a call to leave Rome physically. The first readers of this book did not live in Rome. They lived in Asia Minor. So it's not a call to say physically get out of the city. It's a call to be different. It's a call not to live by the rules of culture, but by a relationship with Jesus. So now we have to begin wrestling with, well, what does it look like then to come out? Because this is, this is challenging. First, we live in a culture. We can't escape it. We are in a culture. To the best of my knowledge, everyone that has arrived today has been fully clothed. Okay, to the best of my knowledge. 
you're not, well, everybody's fully clothed. The clothes we wear are shaped by culture. I didn't show up wearing a brown tunic today because that's not our culture. We are in culture. And we need money to live. I mean, good looks will only buy you so many groceries. We have to have money. That's the reality of it. So how can we live in a culture but not be part of it? How can we use money without being used by money? How do we come out of Babylon? First thing is this. I just want to give you two things to consider in coming out of Babylon. First is this. Realize that this issue is one of worship. Will we worship God or will we worship money, wealth, and luxury? Look at the words of Jesus again in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Paul echoed this in 1 Timothy. The love of money is the root of all evil. Hebrews 13, 15. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The way Jesus phrased this, and I prefer the word mammon to money because it carries with it the idea of power. We can't love God and mammon. You see, what we idolize is that which we believe gives us security, freedom, and power. That's what we end up worshiping. What will give us security, freedom, and power. And money makes a bid for a place of omnipotence in our lives because it promises security. It promises freedom. It promises power. And money is a power that wants supremacy in your life. Now, our danger is this, is to sit back and fold our arms and say, man, that's an issue for the rich. Those people who've got money, that's a problem for them. But I want you to know, it is an issue for every person. Whether it's a person who is wealthy and is consumed with keeping and gaining more wealth, or a person that has nothing but believes that the answer to their problems is getting more money. Both are the same issue. This is an issue we all have to face. Martin Luther once said there are three conversions that have to take place. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. To say, how am I going to use what God has given me? Now, how do we know if we're making money a God? I would ask you this. How much do you think about it? How much is your thought, are your thoughts consumed with money and wealth and getting this and getting that? Remember, what you mourn over reveals what you value. Put it like this. For those that are married, how often do your arguments revolve around money? According to statistics, most marriages end because of disagreements over money. That can be insight into what we value. So what do we do when we recognize we are consumed with thinking about money and stuff? It may not be money. It may be getting the latest and the greatest. We start by repenting. We recognize it for what it is and say, I need to come out of that. Lord, change my thinking. Now here's the second part. Repent. But repentance is shown in action. So what do we do to come out of Babylon? We commit to be generous. The love of money is the root of all evil. 
So if we love God more than we love money, we recognize that money is simply a power to be used for His glory. There is a connection between what you do with your material possessions, with your money, with your stuff, and your spiritual health. Jonathan Edwards, at the height of the Great Awakening, preached a message where he instructed his congregation how to make spiritual discoveries. Now, this is, if you'll allow me to translate, spiritual discoveries means growing in the faith. How to be richer in your walk with God. This is what Edwards said. To be much in deeds of charity is the way to have spiritual discoveries. In other words, you want to keep growing in your faith? Learn to be generous. That's part of growth. Generosity is the answer to greed. Jesus taught this. Let me give you two examples from the words of Jesus. First is this. Rich young ruler. I like to think of him as the man that would have been on GQ Jerusalem monthly. Got everything going. Young, I imagine him very handsome. He's wealthy. Drove the latest Lexus chariot. Comes up to Jesus. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, let me tell you. I'm glad you asked. Obey all the commandments. Lord, I've done that. Oh, oh, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you'll have eternal life. Now, Jesus wasn't saying you buy your way to heaven. He was saying a heart that is redeemed loves the Lord more than stuff and is willing to let it go for the sake of the kingdom. The rich young ruler, we are told, walked away brokenhearted because he had a lot of stuff. Second example, Zacchaeus. You're familiar with Zacchaeus, aren't you? How do we know Zacchaeus? He was, and I know this is not politically correct, he was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. Climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. Now, we usually stop the story there. That's just the introduction. You know what happened when Jesus got to Zacchaeus' house? Zacchaeus said, Master, I'm going to give away half of my stuff. And if I've cheated anybody, because he was a tax collector, he said, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give them back four times as much as I stole. If I took a dollar, I'm going to give them four dollars back. Now listen to what Jesus said. Salvation has come to this house. He wasn't saying you buy your way to heaven by giving stuff away. He was saying that a heart that values the kingdom more than the stuff of this world is ready to be generous and not hold on to its stuff. The lure of Babylon is subtle. So we must keep the call in front of us to come out. How do we do that? We start by giving. Now, I know if statistics bear out, the majority of us in this congregation are up to our eyeballs in debt. That's the reality. So you say, Pastor, I just don't know if I can give. Not just to, the, to be generous. You know what my counsel is? Start where you are. God will not judge us on how we would handle it if we ever had a million dollars. That won't be the issue. When we stand before God, He's not going to say, Now tell me, what would you have done if I had given you a million dollars? Oh Lord, I would have been real generous. Come on in, good. 
No, he's going to say, you know what? I gave you $30,000 a year. How did you use it? I gave you a job. I gave you a house. How did you use it? That's the criteria. Don't think about what you don't have. Begin with where you are. And if it's being generous in little things, $5 here. Or, or I, I, Pastor, I can't give a tithe right now. Start If it's only $20 a week, but to start releasing the hold, the death grip of greed on your heart by giving. So the question is, will we live to make money or will we live for the kingdom of God? That's the lesson from the lament. The call to come out. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.